Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free. I've got someone really amazing and wonderful, as all my Live Free, Ride Free people are. Today, it's Nick Ross. Nick Ross is not a household name. You do not need to be a household name in order to live a self-actualized life. You just have to go live one. And of the many people I know who've really achieved this, Nick's one of my heroes. I've known Nick since he and I were of university age. So this was 40 or 50,000 years ago, I think, in the Younger Dryas Ice Age in between the mastodon and the mammoth evolution. And in that time, Nick was always famous among our peer group for two things. One was his passion for art and art history, which he had then, he has now and has lived through and has managed to make a living out of in a way that people would always say to him, well, you can't make a living out of that. Oh, it's all very well studying that. You can't make a living out of that. You know, you never make a living out of that. And you certainly can't bring up your kids and educate them on that. No, but he jolly well has. And he hasn't done it in a boring academic sort of way. Not that there's anything wrong with being a professor of art history. In fact, we love the fact that people are. But no, he's done it completely on his own terms in a really interesting way. Those of you who are familiar with the Romantic period of British and indeed European history will probably know something called the Grand Tour. And those of you who don't know what the Grand Tour is, well, now I'm going to tell you. There was a time, and it really started in the Renaissance, when the sons of the nobility of Europe were encouraged to go and educate themselves by traveling around the ancient sites of Italy, Roman, Renaissance, and so on, and later on, to some degree, Greece as well, and learn the humanities and basically learn to appreciate culture and learn a certain sort of humility and a certain sort of uh, emotional regulation in the face of the grand passions of the arts and uh, the idea of standing on the shoulders of giants and so on. And some people saw this as a self-indulgent exercise of, you know, rich young men sort of drinking and whoring and fighting their way around the flesh pits of, of the Mediterranean. And although it's not that that never happened, because you were dealing with young men here, much of the literature and art that we take for granted that came out of the particularly early 19th century period, like Byron, like Shelley, like Keats, or it came out of these experiences. And that's just that's just the, the handful that spring to my mind. These days, Nick has taken that idea and made it much more democratic and also not strictly male and not strictly for the rich and has opened this idea of going to these places and, and imbibing this culture as a way to 
mature the young minds who will become the leaders of tomorrow and has made an extraordinarily good go of it and has had an enormous amount of fun along the way and has indeed, I would say, trained some of the leaders of today because we're going back a whole generation now when this began. So Nick Ross is really a, an example of if you have a passion and you want to follow it, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Don't let anybody say, well, you can't make a living doing that. Because what they mean is they can't make a living doing that. And if you make a living doing that, well, it makes them feel a bit bad about themselves. So you want to sort of do what Nick did and sort of jolly well go ahead and do it. Now, there were two things I said that stood out about Nick. That was one, his passion for art and for showing people this art. The other thing was his Byronic capes that he would wear and still does. And his elegantly striding, yet at the same time, heroically limping gait, which came as a result of a broken neck while doing something heroic, while playing rugby as a very young man, while actually still at school. And again, having been told that perhaps his prospects weren't so good and that certainly spending the next 50 years leading groups of high-spirited young leaders of the next generation around kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of ancient cities and sites wouldn't really be possible. Well, he beat those odds. So I want to shut up now and let you meet Nick. So without further ado, Nick, hello, and thanks for coming on Live Free Ride. For Hi there, Ruth. Thank you very much. That's yes, I didn't know you knew that much about me. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a few years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and obviously, I'm a huge fan, always have been. Tell us who you are, where do you come from, and what kicked your life off along this path? Oh, so father, father was a naval officer. Mother, Joan, had polio when she was ju just after they were engaged. So in a way, my difficulties physically were, were I, I ended up mirroring my mother uh, oh, in many respects. That I didn't and, know. And uh, so she had bulbar polio in 1947 and didn't have the use of her left arm. And, and got, she, she was probably about 20% of any other physically able person. So the idea of growing up with disability was, was, was completely normal for us. As, so that's, that's sort of kind of where I came from. And why, why did I end up doing what I'm doing now? Well, there's two reasons. As you point out, the, the first one was that I ended up breaking my spine playing rugby. And, and I wound up in, in a hospital bed at Stoke Mandeville. And, and then I, I, I remember being there. And, uh, and realizing that what I had hoped would be a career in the Navy was never going to happen. And that until that point in my life, when I was 16, I'd, I'd been Mr. Sporty. If you, if you could define me, it was that I was fast at running and I loved rugby and stuff like that. And, and I'd show no signs of having a brain. And, and I remember lying there in bed thinking, I've got to change the brawn into Breen. If I'm going to be left with only my mind, and no physical presence or, you know, no, no activity, then I would, I would have to employ my mind. At and what age, how, what, at what age were you when you had this realization? Oh, 16. Okay. And, and so I started reading, which I, I had really tried to avoid up until, until that point. Did they, did they actually have to teach you to read in the hospital? 
<laughs> pretty well, pretty well. Anyway, they, the, but the, the other thing was that my, my parents, they had, when they first married, they didn't have very much money. It was that sort of post-war period. And they, they worked really hard and they didn't go on holiday. They never left the farm that they took up because my father left the Navy in order to look after my mother and he needed a job where he could work at home. So he thought, all I know about is the sea and managing men and fighting. And so he thought, well, I do also know a lot about the weather and so I'll take up farming. And so he did farming. And, what sort um, of farmer was he? Um, dare, well, started off mixed, uh, mixed and arable, but then ended up just doing dairy. But, but he, they, they didn't go away for 18 years because they were building the farm, building family, all of those sorts of things. And when I was seven, they went, they took us all to Florence. And my parents did an awful lot of work before we went so that they always knew wherever we were, whatever building we were in, they kind of knew some story about it. And, um, and that's sort of where it all came from. So jump 10 years or jump nine years to, to the day that I ended up in hospital. If you'd asked me then, what else are you interested in? It was art. And it was entirely because my parents had made sure that whenever we went somewhere, they weren't dragging us around, that they had something to say. You know, they were informed. Well, that's interesting that given that your dad was ex-military and then became a farmer and then you were growing up as a, a farm boy when you weren't at school and when you were at school being a jock, art would seem a little bit of a guilty secret to have. Was that something that you kept to yourself or was that something you willingly shared with the other jocks and would bop them on the nose if they teased you about it? Or how did that because those are two, those are normally two exclusive cultures within the school. They'd be the jocks and the fops, right? And yeah. so you were you were sort of an equal <laughs> hybrid there. Yeah. How, how did that happen? Oh, the, the no, I think I think people generally knew I was interested enough. I was always around the art school and put on. I remember we did we did something on on futurism when I was about thirteen, and we, and we just transformed the we we built a structure inside the art school. And it was a sort of passage through war. And uh, yeah, no, so I think people knew I was interested in art. Yeah, so that wasn't a conflict. That wasn't a problem, if you see what I mean. Mm. But I take your point. It, 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 doesn't sit, it doesn't sit conveniently together. So you're see lying in this hospital bed in Stoke Mandeville. But for those listeners who don't know, Stoke Mandeville is, if you have a really bad spinal injury in the UK, you're going to end up in Stoke Mandeville. And when I was at school, there was a boy who broke his neck on the rugby field as well, who ended up there and he didn't make it. So it just, if you ended up there, it meant that it was pretty serious. So you're lying there, you're thinking, oh God, you know, there go my dreams. I'm only 16, but I love art. And you haven't been back to Italy since you were seven, or have you at this point? No. Right. No. So, so this is a cherished memory, a, a de and a decade old, which is a long time for somebody that young, obviously, that's half your life, more. You begin to read. What are you reading? Oh, everything about two thirds through, because I started reading the story, Gombrich's story of art, and then I started reading other books. But the thing was, because at the time I had very little movement, I could only really move my, rotate my wrist. I couldn't, I had no, I had no biceps. 
uh, and I didn't have anything else. So stomach muscles, legs, all of the rest, none of them worked. And, but I could rotate my wrist. So rather like a Royal wave, I could, I could do this, which meant that the, there was a, I had a leather strap around my hand, which upon which or into which was stuck an aluminium stick with a post office, you know, one of those finger rubber things that you put at the end of the finger to, to turn pages quickly. Okay. And, and with this peculiar, this Royal wave, I could, I could just flick the top of the left-hand page, having read the, the spread, I could flick the top of the left-hand page and then, sh and then, and then push it under the keeper of the right-hand keeper. Okay. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got this lectern with a book over my head. So you're lying on your back looking up at the book. Yeah. And the book is suspended over your face. Yes. And, and I had to bite my thumb because if my arm spasmed, it would spasm away from my face, which would take my hand away from the book. And I didn't have the biceps to get the arm back again. So I had to bite my thumb in order to keep hold of it and then, and then flick one page. And then, and then if you see what I mean, push it under the keeper the other side. As it got heavier on the right-hand side, the more I read, it became unstable from its left-hand tethering. And so every so often it would just collapse. As I got towards the, it got further through the book, it would get heavier on the right-hand side and it would keep on collapsing. So I am, I'm really shit after about 1900 in, in terms of art, because that was in the last third of the book. So it kept you, kept you in the Renaissance. Kept me in the Renaissance. That's the only reason I know anything about it. And how long did this level of disability last? I was, I was in there for about eight or nine months. And I, I was just walking by the time I left. I could just about bear my own weight. And, and yeah, I could walk. I wasn't, it wasn't totally unaided. But, but, then, but then I went straight back to school because I'd missed my lower sixth year. So my penultimate year at secondary school. And uh, so I went back straight back to school, did my A-levels in a year, which wasn't a good idea. Well, it was actually in one sense, because it meant that I kept up with all of my mates, but it wasn't long enough to do three A-levels. And besides, I, I was running the school bar, which was really quite good fun. Of course <laughs> you were. Yeah. And, uh, and Delegating my... the hefting of the crates and barrels. Yes. All yeah. <laughs> but, but the long and the short of it was that I, I ended up with really, really appalling A-levels and, uh, and said, so I did all sorts of other things for a while, but always wanted to get back towards art history in some way or form. So just quickly before, while you're still there in Stoke Mandeville, was there any point where you really despaired? Yeah. Yeah. There was one, one point when my spine wasn't, it's a peculiarity of spinal injuries that in, in where, where normally children, when you break a bone, you fix really quickly. When you break your neck, you don't, you do, you do break the bones, but it's, but it's the cartilage in between as you dislocate, you know, things that that's the problem. And that's where you get severance of the spinal cord. And, and that's what leads to the paralysis. Weirdly for younger people, it doesn't fix so well. And, and that's exactly what happened to me. So after, after about 12 weeks, my spine actually hadn't fused in any way. It hadn't joined up. And so they had to do an operation on me. 
and I had very limited movement. That movement that I had was how I was reading and so on. Anyway, I heard the, the orthopedic because all I could see was the ceiling. I couldn't feel anything. And so my ear, my hearing got really good and I could overhear the orthopedic surgeon who thought he was out of earshot say, you know, it's, it's, we've very rarely done this operation. It's very dangerous. He may lose everything that he's got so far and we may do more damage than good. And, uh, and the next morning I projectile puked all over the male nurse who was giving me breakfast and I projectile puked everything for the next two and a half weeks. And what it was, was that I was shit scared. I was deeply, deeply frightened that I was going to, I was going to lose everything and I was going to be finally without options. And, and did you keep all this to yourself or did you share this with anybody? Well, the thing was that I was sharing so much vomit with everybody that, <laughs> that everybody knew. I, you know, they, everybody else around me knew that the only reason I was throwing up like this was because I was, I was, I was terrified. And you had to live in suspense then for two weeks or so after having yeah. heard this with, with the uncertainty of the outcome. Yeah, exactly. And the problem was that I was losing so much weight. I went in at about 13, 13 and a half stone and six foot. And I was down below six stone and they were, and, and I was getting so thin that they thought that I wouldn't be able to sustain an operation. And again, for those, for those listeners who don't know the English weight measurements, he is, you're, he's basically gone in there as a teenager of about 130, 140 pounds at six foot, which is, you know, light athletic and gone down to 50, 60 pounds at six foot, which is not healthy at all. Why did they decide to operate when you had lost so much weight? Oh, well, the, the, if they didn't operate, my spine would just be kind of floating in, the, the vertebrae would have been floating in jelly, okay, so to speak. And, so it and, was do or die at that point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then you wake up from the operation. Yeah. Uh, do you think, oh shit, I've, I've actually lost everything because you're lying there feeling weak or do you, does some part of you know? Okay, this is good. Oh, no, no, well, no, actually, you know, I haven't thought about this since ever, actually. I do remember coming around and, you know, the, my physiotherapist, senior consultant were all shouting at me, trying to get me to move and, and just see, anyway. So I did, I did have the bicep. That was the, it was my right bicep that I wanted back most people. Because if I had that, I knew that I had a chance of getting my fingers back. And okay. if I had one hand, and one arm, I'd be the same as my mum. And if she, did, and that was my focus, was that if I had, if I just had that, I knew that she'd had four children on one arm. So, so why couldn't I? You know, it would all be fine. Okay. Fast forward, how many kids have you had? Three. All right. So you, you, well, you've maybe got time to make up one more. We'll see. <laughs> I guess there's any out there that you don't know of. Okay. So how quickly from then? From that operation, are you up and walking? And are you? Do you continue to read? And do you read more voraciously at that point? Yeah, no. So I'm. I'm now. It took me another six months to to be walking. Six seven months to be walking, and then I was reading. I was reading all the time. What What was the What's the book that really stands out from that time? Ooh. Oh, prob probably probably. Baxendal, who wrote Painting and Experience in 15th Century Florence, 
Baxendal. How do we spell that? B-A-X-A-N-D-A-L-L. Baxendal. B-A-X-A-N-D-A-L-L. Yeah. And the, the title of the book? Uh, Painting and Experience in 15th Century Florence. Painting and Experience in 15th Century. And why does that book, why did that book stand out? Because it's all about context. So he talks about weights and measures. He talks about, you know, who, who, made, who made paint. He's, he's, talking about the, he's talking about currency. He's talking about all of those little aspects of life that people tend to forget that have a bearing on the way things appear. Right. And what was it the other day? I, I was, uh, something was going around the internet the other day about the gauge of railway lines, the distance between railway tracks, and it being related to, uh, which, is a, which is a measurement that's now spread around the world, but it relates to a tunnel in, in South Wales, something like that. I'm probably getting this wrong, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just an explanation of why something as ordinary and as common as the size of a train is related to something that happened in the 18th century that was some, some engineer somewhere just said, oh, well, there's a problem. This is the solution. And then it's get, it gets stuck in the system. It's rather like laws that get stuck on the statute book. I'm kind of interested in the detritus of history that, may, that explains why things are the way they are. Yes, got it. And you, and you picked that up while lying there on your back, trying to go from one bicep to the rest of your body. Yes. Yeah. So you, you fuel the fire of your passion while lying there. You go back to school, you run a bar. Why not? You, your A-levels are okay. But I, when I met you, A-levels, again, by the way, for readers not familiar with the English system, you must have A-levels at the end of school if you want to get to university. Now, when I met you, of course, you had gone to university. So if you said you did stuff in between. So, so fill us in. You, you don't go straight to university to do art history at this point. You, you leave school and you do what? So, so I, then, I then, okay, so at school, because I broke my spine, I was... I, I, I became very well known. Everybody knew who I was. So, so in a, which is a weird place to be because at 16, 17, you're trying to work out who you are. Right. But if you're surrounded by people who already know who you are, it's a, it's a, it's a curious place to be in. Okay. And, and so when I left school, I didn't want to have anything to do with connections or anybody, any friends. Okay. I just wanted to find my own job, my own place to live my own life i wanted to work out find out if i could exist if i could work if i was if i was socially adept as opposed to just being the bloke who broke his neck who everybody knows who he is i don't know if that makes any sense it does and or and or the bloke who get, you get free drinks off in the bar yeah yeah exactly so i ended up i ended up in a shitty little bed sit in fulham uh, where i could i could sit on the edge of my bed wash dress and sleep all in the same place. Take one, one, one stride and I'd be out the door. It was tiny. Okay. I got my, my, myself a job at Liberties, which is a, a big haberdasherous, big department store, one of the earliest department stores in London. Uh, and, then, and then I ended up working as a bank clerk, doing anything, doing nights. You know, you know how it is. You know, 18, 19, you just, you need money. You've got to go and find it somewhere. 
And then I ended up working as a, as a volunteer in a museum in Manchester and because I wanted to get somewhere towards the art, but I, I, I didn't have the A-levels. I needed some, something to go to a university interview with. And so I ended up working in Manchester and I was also quite interested in photography. So I started taking photographs of, of pubs on the way, on the way home from the art gallery. And there's a theme running here. And, and, and it's good to know that I you're would, dedicated to research. Yes. Yeah. And if, if you know about developing or printing black and white photographs, so I take these rather dramatic images and then I print them myself. But, but if you know the old fashioned process, I would underfix them in the dark room so that they would then, when they would dry and put in a black bag, if you opened the bag and exposed it to light, then the print would disappear in about five minutes. Okay. And the reason I did this is simply that if you take a photograph and try to sell it to anybody, it's really difficult to get the money out of them. So I would, I would underfix the photograph, dry it, stick it in the black bag and stick on the outside a sort of Mission Impossible type sticker, had them specially printed, which said, in this bag is a photograph of your pup. It will self-destruct in five minutes. If you want it, ring this number. And I'll bring it around to you and you give me the money, that sort of thing. Anyway, anyone give you that idea? It's a brilliant idea. Why didn't you no, spend no, no, well, it was just, doing that? David, you know how, well, in those days, if you went to a party, people would take your photograph outside. Yeah. And, and, uh, but they never, I never got it. I never understood how they made any money because people would take the photograph and never pay. So anyway, so I just thought if I, if you novel the photograph from the outset, then then it, the, so then they would open the photograph when, you know, I'd, I'd encourage them to open the photograph when there were others around and, and they loved the photographs and they'd give me a call and say, great, we'd like it. So I'd print it up on really fine paper and then take it around, mount it and everything. And they loved the photographs because they were sort of gritty, urban, you know, reflections in puddles type images, you know, the ones. And, and, and the pub owners like that. They didn't want you to take uh, chocolate boxy things that no, they loved. So they loved the, they loved the black and white grainy thing. And the, but then the thing was that people would ask me to photograph their kids. And that was the, that was the thing. So then I'd spend all weekends photographing people's families and printing them up on black and white. Okay. And, and that's how I made a living. Cause I was and working. You were doing all this in Manchester. Yeah. Okay. So you're taking photographs of disappearing pubs and children. Yes. I rather like that. Your kids will self-destruct in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no. There's a sort of great subliminal image there. Yes, I will, I will buy. How much? Then you're at this museum. What's going on in this museum? How does uh, this get you to university? There's a really amazing museum director who... What's in the museum? Coming... Sorry? What's in the museum? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great Manchester City Art Gallery. It's one of the great Collections of pre-Raphaelite paintings. Okay, it's Manchester City Art Gallery. Yeah, um, and the director there, a guy called Tim Clifford, said, "Listen, please don't come and work for an afternoon or a day a week like most volunteers, because it's difficult to find things for people to do. Come and work full time if you're young. Come and work full time, and I promise I'll buy you lunch every Monday." And and I didn't I didn't really realise until much later in life how valuable that was. Because it meant I had an hour with, with this supremely ambitious man. And he would ch chat about what I was doing and what he was doing. And I learned so much from him. He mentored you, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I now realize that 
in that sort of position, lunch is a really valuable tool. Lunch. And he was giving me one of his five lunches a week. So he was giving up a lot to mentor me. And you have now reminded me that, so for readers, Art History Abroad, which is, which is Nick's company, which we're going to go into in a minute. One of the things that everybody who's ever done anything connected with this incredible company, which has affected people's lives around the world. There, there are people in power around the world who know art history abroad and the art history abroad lunches. And the power of those lunches is very interesting that this lunch thing to some degree begins there, even to the point that our, our dear mutual friend, Tom Parsons, who I hope to get on here as well. Did you invent this or did he invent this? That uh, the cure for depression is to take a song with the word love in the title and uh -huh. replace the word love with the word lunch. That's more Tom than it's there. I think that's Tom. Yeah. It's good. I tried it. It works. Works completely. Every time I feel it. Give me an like example. That. Can you? Yeah. I want to know what lunch is. <laughs> I want you to show me. I feel so passionate about this. You know, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you believe in lunch after all? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay, yeah, lunch, so lunch we do, yeah. Lunch, lunch we do. All you need is lunch. Yeah. Uh, so it's something in, in, innately cheerful about lunch. It's something innately optimistic about lunch. Yes. Yeah. But and as we know, innately cheerful. Yeah. It, it, it's where deals are made because you're not winding. No, but you know my my dad sticks on this. Tell me the his okay. Robert Woodward, another big figure in our lives, said, "Lunch is not lunch unless you have a glass of wine." Anything, if no glass of wine, anything less is a snack. Yes. Okay. And Robert Woodward, again, for readers, I wish we could have Robert Woodward on this show because in terms of one of the great self-actualizers of Western history, he stands out. Those of us who knew him, I will, we'll talk about him a bit. Hopefully, maybe you'll talk about him, Nick, because he, he's obviously very relevant to this story. But meanwhile, you're being, you're being mentored by this very amazing museum director even though yeah. you've, you're living in a bedsit, you're, you're taking some pictures, you're working as a, as, a, as a volunteer. His name again is? Tim Clifford. Timothy Clifford. Tim, Tim Clifford. Did he then, what did he go on to do? He then became director of National Galleries of Scotland. And, and he, was, he was kind of the, the best national, you know, he should, he, it would have been lovely if he got the V&A or the National Gallery or the Met in New York. All, all of which he was touted for at different times. But he's quite a tr controversial figure. And, and he's sort of, I, I always rather feel that he's the best museum director of a major, major national museum that we never had. Okay. I think okay. He, he, was, he was very, very good. And I was, you know, I was very lucky to spend time with him. And for example, he would give me, so he would give me display cases. He'd say, what's in, what do you find interesting in the collection? Because I knew the basement. I knew all of the stuff that wasn't on display. He okay. said, find me something by next week that you want, you want to talk to me about, something that's never been seen. And down there, there was some, something, you've probably seen them there. They're, they're bone ships, Napoleonic ships, or sort of Nelson. Oh, by theory. the prisoners of war. Yeah. In the the, the French Napoleonic prisoners of war in the internment exactly. camps in the UK. I have seen some of those. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he's, yeah. he's, he said, I came back and I said, I, I'm interested in these. And he said, great. Okay. I'll give you two display cases in the main gallery from, you know, six weeks from now. 
So, and, and it's up to you. It's up to you to curate it, tell people about it, write about it, whatever. And he just gave me that as a problem. So he started basically grooming you to become a curator. Why did he take such a shine to you? What, what, what was going on? Did, did he do this kind of with every intern that came? No, no, no. I think, I think, you know, he was, he was just, no, I don't know. He, he, he I knew, he, I, I, the reason I kind of got in the door was that he had worked, a, a very old cousin of mine is a man called Sir Trenchard Cox, after whom we named the scholarship. And, and, and Trenchard was the museum director when Tim Clifford was a young man. And so when I subsequently wrote to Tim Clifford and said, I'm a cousin of Trenchard, Cox, you may remember that was, I think that possibly opened the door. I don't know. Perhaps, well, perhaps to the initial say, okay, I'll give it, I'll give the kid a, a shot, but yeah. he didn't have to go the extra mile and, and have you begin to curate things. No, no. And by, and by that stage, one of the other jobs he gave me was to, to organize the friends, of the Manchester city art gallery. So this, 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 you know, it's like a membership. I used to organize events for them and I think he got, you know, they went well. So I think he, he quite liked me for that. Is that the story of the cheetahs? Oh yeah. <laughs> Tell us the story of the cheetahs. Okay. Drum roll, everybody. The story of the cheetahs. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. I've got to be careful. So, so, so there are, there are at Manchester, there's the, there's the very, there's now very famous stubs. 18th century painter called Stubbs, who's for, who's, who's better known for, for painting horses. But Stubbs did at one point a, a picture of two cheetahs and two, two moors, two handlers, dressed beautifully in turbans and, and North African dress. Tame cheetahs being used for coursing, for hunting, as they used to be used in the courts of Asia and the Middle East. Right. Yeah. And sodding great pictures, sort of eight, 12 feet square, something like that. And Tim Clifford bought it. And, and it's one of the, it's, it's a, you know, and this was what he was really good at. He was really good at finding pictures that had otherwise missed people's attention and buying them. Anyway, so they were, they raised the money, they bought this picture and they were going to have the big opening. And Tim got him in those days, what was probably the best caterers in Manchester. And these, these two fantastic caterers came in and they looked at the pictures and they, they looked at the contents of the bit and they said, boys, we have got to have Ethiopians as the waiters. And I don't think anybody would get away with this now, I have to say, but, but there's another era. Yeah. Yeah. So there was caviar, there was, there were these Ethiopian men bared to the waist wearing great pantaloons and so on. And he hired two cheetahs. Of course um, he did. Of course he did. And and it was it was due on a on a Monday night. And and the lady, Manchester is 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 a, a fantastic area of the world. It's a brilliant, amazing city. And um, the it was bang in the middle of the miners' strike. So in English history, British history, it was at a point when there was so, such social division fostered, let's say, by by. Margaret Thatcher, uh, and a clash of the unions and a clash of ideologies. And if you can imagine the the the, the left wing councillors in the town hall across, yeah, it was the class way. war basically. 
full on yeah. bus. Got, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. it was like the battleship Potemkin. They they stormed the building, and and I was upstairs. So as, people with pitchforks and and torches <laughs> outside roaring in and rushing up the stairs, where they were met halfway up the steps by all of the Conservative councillors who were in the party, and there was this handbag swinging, you know, fisticuffs, lots of wrestling, in that slightly sort of drunk, posh. English way of doing it. Um, Falling down the stairs in tweed jackets. Yeah, tugging your shirts, everything. Anyway, the battle continued upstairs and and, uh, lots of pushing and shoving. And at one point, somebody fell backwards into a plinth holding a sporting an amazing Baroque sculpture by a man called Algardi, who's a sort of pupil of Bernini. And this thing wobbled. And you probably know that sensation if if you you tap something and, uh, and whatever is unsecured on top will wobble, and 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 you know that it's probably best not to interfere. <laughs> and and, and you can only watch. You can only watch an aura. Yeah. And and anyway, instead of settling back down, there came a dreadful point when all of us realised because the fight had stopped. There was silence in the room as we all watched this wobble, and and it started to go, and and this was priceless. And into that space leapt one of the waiters who, who like a diving Superman, but without a shirt on, dived across the great pantaloons billowing in the, great in the breeze. Saved this thing. Wow. Yeah, no, it was a great night. It was a great night. Huh? And then did, all, did the councillors that had tried to storm the party then accept a drink and... Yeah, and, it all uh, calmed down after that. And, and, and that brought everybody... Everyone was mates again. Yeah. And the cheetahs, how did they fare? Do you know they they kind of nobody kind of took any notice of them anymore. It was it, the party had created its own drama. Ah, there are there are parties and parties. That was a party. Yeah, that was a great party. Yeah. Okay, so you you're there at the at the museum now for how long? How long do you stay there for, for a year? And then and then but what, but but it did its thing. You see, because I wanted to get to university, and uh, and, and so off the back of that. That, that being at the museum, yeah. I got an interview at, at University of East Anglia to go and read history of art. Okay. okay. Uh, so they saw me for an interview. And then during the interview, I didn't really have, you know, a lot to go on, not in terms of results or qualification, but they, they, in those days, and I think they still do a bit, bit now is quite often you'll just show somebody photographs of artifacts or things and, and say, you know, tell me about it. And, uh, and, and it's a good system. You're trying to register somebody's visual acuity. And uh, anyway, I was shown a photograph of a painting that I didn't know what it was, when it was painted, and I didn't know who it was by. And I didn't even really know the subject, but I knew where it was. And, uh, and so I told this to a man called Eric Fernie, who was interviewing me. I said, I can't tell you anything about it, but I'll tell you where it is. And he said, right, where is it? And I said, oh, well, you go to Florence and you go to the biggest square in Florence. And there's a, there's a building in there with a huge, great tower. I don't know what it's called. But anyway, you go in there and you go in through the courtyard and you go to the staircase. You've got three flights of stairs and there's a door on your left. You go in that door and you're in a sodding great hall. And you take a, a right and you go to the right backhand corner. And there are some steps. You go up there and it's a small room and it's first painting on the left. You remember this from when you were seven years old? Yeah. And, um, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a study for a guy called Francesco Medici. 
and uh, and I was and it's and it's it's hard to get into. And my dad got permission to get in there, and so we looked at and uh, and now I know it's a it's a story of Perseus and Andromeda, and um and it's the mythological reason why we had have red coral because Perseus, when fighting Andromeda or fighting for Andromeda, is fighting a great dragon and he whips out Medusa's head. And to turn the dragon to stone, and he puts the head down, having turned the dragon to stone, and blood dribbles out of the neck, the severed neck of Medusa's head, and dribbles into the sea and turns red and solidifies. And that's despite how we get... the fact that he's been carrying this dripping head around for quite a long time. It's dripped on other things, but doesn't yeah. seem to have well, probably it. All sorts of things, but but that's anyway. why we have red poppies and red yeah red rocks. Yeah. Uh, anything red. That's why we okay. have. Ah, well, that's fine. That's yeah. Put it on somebody's pillow. Anyway, but but, but yeah. as a result of that, Fernie said, "Well, if you can remember that, you can, you can, you can come here." And why did that picture stand out so much for you? Oh, I think it was because my dad told me the story. I just happened to know. Yeah, I couldn't remember any of the names, any of any anything like that. But I could. It wasn't. Remember. It wasn't the image so much as the story. Yeah, and that was what my dad was really good at. Well, I mean that that's something which I'd say marks out what you've done so again just for listeners back in the day i was lucky enough to teach a couple of history sessions on some of nick's epic journeys around Um, yes i don't know how we survived but what i can tell you is that the story surrounding each painting each sculpture each building each quarter of the city that nick and his people would take us too would come magically alive in a way that you can't say to a guide, you can't say teacher, you can't say, and it's not, there's anything wrong with those. And it's not that those can't be fascinating, but story and mythos, story as its own art form is normally separated from visual art. It's normally the, 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 the power of the visual art has a story. They talk about the story. They say in this Chagall painting, he's talking about this and the story is this, but really what we want you to look at is his amazing composition or his amazing use of color or this or this. And for that reason, I've often found art his, the way people present art history a bit boring rather than the game of thrones, who was bonking, who, who was killing, who, who was torturing, who, and therefore why this street looks like it does or, or why this painting hangs on that particular wall because somebody did this something outrageous and funny and cruel and bananas and whoa that's interesting and i think that you have to have a special talent for this and you know some people put this down on the printed form and other people tell it as oral history and one of the things which i think really stands out with art history abroad is it's really the art of oral history in our modern day in a way that I don't think I've seen outside of some of the indigenous areas that I've worked in, where they pass mythologies on that way. So, okay, you're, you're off to university. I meet you because you know you're the cousin of someone I was at university with. There's, oh, yeah, yeah, Marion. Marion, yeah. There's, there's drunkenness, there's hilarity, there's the usual university stuff when you come to visit. Marion and you and my friend Tom become chums because of a mutual love of art history. He's doing art history as well. At what point do you 
become AHA, Art History Abroad, and start taking people and revolutionizing the idea of the grand tour. How do you go from that student to that person making your uh, living doing this? So I started doing a, I started doing a PhD after I finished, after I got my degree and, and I've just realized through that I've got, if, if you can, if, and it may stick out on the recording, there's the, there's the dog at my feet snoring. And uh, right now, because I can hear my dog through the, through the door, <laughs> right, okay. um, yapping, so and I'm hoping that's not coming into the, well, yeah. it may, it may, uh, it may show it, it does, does that show the power of oral history. If we can send, <laughs> if you can send your dog to sleep, then, you know, you can tell a story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a pug called Doug. And, and the thing is that he, he finds enough difficult enough breathing anyway, uh, when he's asleep, it's really noisy. And if I put him out of the door, he'll make so much bloody noise trying to get back in, yes. but it's easier just to put up with him. So uh, part of least resistance. I think I, I, sadly I can't hear him yeah, now, all the, now all the, now all that we can, can you do it? Can you give us a quick impression before you go on to just leave him to it? Listen, not coming through on my microphone. No, he's not, but I know he's just stopped. You'll have to listen. Oh, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Anyway, can you give us just a quick, give us your version of it quickly before you go on? Oh God, I can't even do it. It's so, it's, I haven't got a cold. If I hadn't cold, I, I could do it. It's right up here in the, <laughs> in the sinus. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll have to, well, we'll have to imagine it. Okay. So you, you, you get your degree, you get, now you're on to do your PhD. Yeah. Um, so so do, doing the PhD and, and I'm going backwards and forwards to Italy to do research. What are you doing and, your PhD um, on? It, well, officially it was on antiquarian studies in early 17th century Rome. Okay. But, but what it's, what it is really is it's about a man called Cassiano del Pozzo. And, but the important thing is that he's the publisher of Galileo, Galileo's treatises. I and, see. That's a risky thing to be. That's a risky thing that to be. That gets you in trouble with the Inquisition, I should think. Yeah. But he was also papal secretary to Urban VIII. Okay. So he's got to foot him in both corners and that makes him fundamentally interesting. Okay. And so when they tortured Galileo, did they not torture his publisher because his publisher could say, well, I don't, this doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the publisher disclaimer. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why we have these disclaimers. Got it. Yeah. And, and, oh, now uh, I can hear your dog. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. It was a very good one. Yeah. <laughs> very good. So, so anyway, so no, it's just that he, he, Cassiano commissioned the people at Poussin and, and Salvador Rossa and all sorts of really interesting artists and to go off and draw antiquities. Okay. And, and geological specimens and flora and fauna citrus fruit so basically he he's commissioning the anti-ecclesiastical arts and sciences yes. and even to some degree the metaphysical ones because we know poussin had his foot in the pagan door as well to some yeah. degree, the sort of pre-masonic rosicrucian therefore all of these things would get you locked up by the inquisition and worse yes. and you've got the the pope's what is he to the Pope? Papal secretary, yeah. The papal secretary is commissioning these people. Yeah. Fascinating. 
Okay. So it's, it's it's like I don't know what, what what would it be in U.S. terms, but certainly in in the cabinet office in in U.K. terms, if somebody was in the cabinet office, yeah. So you're a major major. Dip yes, you'd be like um, you'd be like permanent secretary. Yes. Like yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Okay, so you're doing, so doing you're doing your PhD in in seventeenth century Roman yes minister. Yes. <laughs> and. Do you then go on and finish this PhD? No, because because the, with with somebody called Donatella Sparti, the, it's it's very largely her 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 achievements. I helped her a bit. Found a huge archive, and and when we made that public, it changed the the it changed the rule it changed the game really because the the whole idea of a PhD is to find something that nobody else knows about. Certainly for a, for a British PhD, because it has to be a real contribution to knowledge. So it's not, it's a, and, and the trouble was that others, other academics, much greater figures than me were taking an interest in the same field and then publishing. And that, what that would do is it would take a large body of my research and turn it not it, for, from being a chapter in my PhD to being a footnote. Okay. Because. I, w I would effectively be a footnote to somebody else's research as opposed to... You were gazumped, real... basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, how, and how far into your PhD was, was this? Three years. So again, uh, a moment of despair, probably. Oh, yeah. But, but yes. And the thing is that if, if Donatella could read, could read Latin, like reading the, the Times, you know, she... she and she was she, a friend of yours, I presume. And the most remarkable, remarkable mind. And so, and, and I, and I wasn't good enough, quite simply. I, my Latin, my Italian wasn't good enough. And I would never, I would never, it was pointed out to me by a very nice guy at the British Museum that in the nicest possible ways, he said, he said, Nick, you're not, you're just not good enough. You're not bright enough and you will never keep up. And he was absolutely right. But there are lots of people out there getting PhDs who don't speak fluent Latin. So he, he presumably I, meant I just in this field. That, yeah. that what I needed was, was to be able to read pretty, pretty tricky documents really, really quickly. Okay. And I couldn't do it. So at that point, do you give up? Sorry, at that point? At that point, do you give up? Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but, but also by that stage, I'd been teaching for HA for a couple of years because I was I was doing my research and I needed money, so I taught for AHA. Okay, so how did you discover AHA? Artists uh, abroad. A friend mentioned it. I can't remember who mentioned it. And then put me in touch with Sarah Cargom, who was the original founder with Robert Woodward, who we mentioned earlier. Yep. And a guy called Rodney Portman. Okay. And, and the, 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 there was another partner, but they, they kind of ran it and they ran one course a year. And, and I was teaching on that. And then I did some lecturing around schools, drumming up trade while doing my own research. And, uh, and, and it was a sort of more or less balanced life. And, and, uh, and then I, I really began to enjoy being a generalist as opposed to a specialist. And that's what the, and then when somebody said, actually, you're not clever enough to be a specialist, I thought, well, actually stuff being a specialist, I'm really enjoying being a generalist. I want to know about everything. That's a very positive way to look at it in retrospect. At the time, did you want to chuck yourself off a bridge or think shit, you know, I'm, 
here I am again, starting again. Here I am three years into a PhD. I've spent all this money. I've, you know, I've got to, you know, and now I've got to be a generalist. What is this? You know, I mean, there must be. Okay. So I'm sure in that little period after lunch at about three o'clock, um, in most people's lives, there is a point at which you think to yourself, why, why on earth am I doing this? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I was having lots of three o'clock moments thinking, what am I, what am I doing? Sitting in the North Library at the British Museum, trying to catalogue drawings that are aren't really very interesting. Some of them are fascinating, but quite a lot of the time it's rather hard work. Yeah. And, and, and I thought nobody, you know, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not going to solve cancer. I'm not going to. You know, I, me and about six other people are really interested in this and that's it. Right. And it's not going to change the world. Yeah. I'm not going to bring major joy to millions of people this way. No, or, or solve anything. So, so do it sounds dramatic to give it up after three years, but, but I really enjoyed the three years. I learned a hell of a lot. I learned a lot about how to research and things like that. There's lots of pluses. I just didn't come away with a doctorate. So at what point do you flip from there to full-time and then to running AHA? So, so then, then Robert and Sarah Cargom asked me if I'd be a director at AHA. Um, and I said, great. And I put a little bit of money in. And then quite soon we went bust. And I don't think it was me, but it, there, was, there was a snap recession. I don't know if you remember. Early um, 90s. Yeah, no, Norman yeah. Lamont. And, yes, I do remember uh, that. Or that whole business about... It's right, when we all came out of university and there were no jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that happened. So AHA ran out of students. Got we it. We were effectively bust. And the only way out of it was for Sarah and me to go unsalaried for a year. Or, you know, in perpetuity, we had no idea how long it would last. And, the, and quite by chance... A publishing house called Studio Editions asked if I'd write a book on Canaletto. And I wrote back and I said, well, I don't know very much about him. But, and they said, we actually, we don't really care. All we need is 32,000 words in six weeks. Could you do it? And, uh, and I did. And it's about the only thing I've ever done on time. And uh, they were so impressed. They gave me lots of other things to write, which I couldn't fit in. So Sarah wrote some of them. And then Tom Parsons wrote others. And that kept you afloat. And that, and that sort of, we turned it into this writing machine. We weren't working closely together, but, but I think between the three or four of us, we produced, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 books in a year. So the um, universe came in just when you were thinking, okay, here's this un- unlikely way to make a living, which is taking people on the 17th century grand tour and opening their brains and minds and spirits up to the arts and the metaphysics of the Renaissance and classical period. And then everything goes bust. And then the universe says, well, but how about becoming a writing machine for this same thing out of the blue in the middle of a recession? That's very interesting. Oh, and by the way, here's so much of this work that you can't even cope with it, that you're going to have to give it to all your mates, to keep them afloat yeah. too. And then we're all good. And then we're, yeah, it's a good old universe. Yeah. But I mean, if, if that's not, if that's not providence at work, I don't know what is. And if that's not fortune favoring the brave, I don't know what is, because again, just back to that thing, 
the listeners, you know, that's the whole point really of this, of this podcast is those of us who were brought up like me with lots of different passions and interests, constantly being told you're never going to make a living doing that. And that's all I've ever done is making a living doing those things. I love these stories when it, it's those things we say out of the blue came this series of book contracts, yeah. because I mean, getting a book contract, we know getting a book contract is a dash difficult thing to do. It's not an easy thing. You don't just go around getting book contracts. I'm a, I've been a writer for decades and I don't just go around getting book contracts. <laughs> no. Every time I have to get one, I have to get one from scratch. It's a whole process. I might not get one, not every idea that I have gets accepted, even though I've written bestsellers. It's just not like that. It's, you know, it's a business like any other. And so for that to drop out of providence like that is interesting to me. So clearly you guys had made some sort of leap of faith. So in the meantime, you continue to run the business while then writing these books. Is that right? And yeah. Yeah. And then, and then at, at some point we try and sell the business, but it's got no assets. It's got, it's only got goodwill. And so the accountants said, look, there's enough room for one of you to do it, but, but it will, you know, so, so Sarah, who had been at the beginning was offered and she, she said that she didn't want to run it. And I said, well, if nobody else wants to run it, I'll give it a go. I had no, no children, no girlfriend, no wife, no responsibilities. So I thought, well, let's, let's just give it a try. I seem to remember actually this jogs a memory that you were sleeping in a corridor at this point. Yeah, no, I, I then, I then moved to live with my brother in Devon in the corridor. Yeah. That's right. I remember the corridor. Yep. Yeah. And the, the, the desk places. Yeah. And the desk was by a sheet pen in one of his barns. So quite often if I was on the blower on the phone, you know, you, you had the, 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 the barring of sheep in the background and stuff like that. Not, not on like a dog now. Yeah, really, really. It's a bucolic. You could sort of eat a, a poussin like aesthetic to the, to the thing. Yes. Just a little church bell in the distance, perhaps. At what point did it start working for you? And how, how did you get it to start working? Oh, well, I think, I think we diversified and started looking at schools, doing school trips. To, to be honest, we I didn't have any money for advertising or marketing. So the, the only thing. And this is all pre-social media, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and so we thought, we thought the only thing to do is to, or I thought just run everything. So I, even one trip, I remember a family, it was a trip that was advertised to go to Florence and there was only one couple who signed up. And so I said, I rang them about two weeks before and I said, look, I'm really sorry. It's only you and me. I'll, I'll give you your money back. You know, it's fine. And they said, oh, no, we're sharing a bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, they said, that's fine. That's great. In fact, we'd much prefer it that way. Anyway, it turned out that they were really very significant manufacturers in Europe and from a huge family. And, and I have quite simply lost count of the how many hundreds of thousands of pounds of trade over the last 30 years we've had through them. And in fact, one of the grandchildren or great grandchildren, I took on a trip only last week. So, so again, you know, universe, whatever you like, you know, just, just plays into your hands sometimes. And I didn't want to let them down and they didn't, and they wanted to 
do something exclusive and they got it. And, and yet it turned into a, a really big story in the end. And I think your, your, your overall point is that history is a series of paradox is, is the, 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 the trouble with life is that we tend to try and make things neat and tidy. And, and also the problem with text is that, and that's why I haven't, I've, I haven't written anything for a long time is that text is inevitably sequential. Music, fortunately, is less sequential. Our thoughts are certainly not sequential. We tend to think of several things all at the same time. And, and we feel several things all at the same time. And the problem with text is that it means that everything has to be laid out in an orderly way. But, but actually, the way life works, the way we operate, isn't in straight lines. And doesn't one, and one thing doesn't follow another. It's a series of threads jumbled up in a, in a sort of rather delicious mess. And that's half the fun. That's, that's the point. And, and I don't think a usual academic training of arranging everything into logical lines is necessarily very helpful. It's just a, an effective way of teaching. But actually, if you're going to be in the position of managing events around you or people or marshalling others to try and go forward the best way to do it is in a mess because that's the way we all think to to find your order through chaos yes so when if i give somebody responsibility i don't i want i want i'm quite happy with it being messy do you see what i mean because because that is a sort of a reflection of the way we all behave anyway I don't want somebody because it's, it's imagination comes out of mess, out of chaos. Primal it doesn't chaos. come out of. You know, I'm just thinking. You know, here you are. Why would one want to send one's young people out on a journey apart from the educational aspect of it? Through, for example, your company what life lessons are they going to learn? But I, I think that that's exactly it. And I think that that's what people were aiming for 300 years ago on the grand tour too, was to understand the complexities of life, understand the ambivalences of life, understand that things are not black and white, understand that things are paradoxical and how to become comfortable with discomfort. And can you find order in chaos? Can you find entertaining chaos when there's too much order? Can you dance that dance in between? And that dance of life is quality of life and the difference between mere survival and thriving. Yeah. And that's what produces culture. That's what produces art. That's what, you know, when you, when you said, well, you know, I had to give up the PhD, but what's the point of being a specialist in something that isn't going to really positively affect the lives of many, but to go out and get those sorts of life lessons. And I know that some of the people who have gone on your trips over the years have ended up in public office and as, you know, captains of industry and that sort of thing. And I would want those people because they affect my life to have some sort of humanistic perspective. And this idea of the humanities is something which you go and study academically. I don't think you can, you, you, you can say, well, that piece of art is called that, 
any more than you can learn history by saying the Battle of Agincourt was in 1415. Well, okay. But why was it? And what did it mean? Was it just some sort of trade skirmish or did yeah. it actually a affect, you know, the way we think about things right now? Is that why we've remembered it? And we didn't remember the one that happened the week before, which, which got forgotten. Someone has to open one's eyes to this. Yeah. Okay, Nick, it seems to me from my experience with AHA that I experienced a great sense of freedom when I attended the course. And I heard this from the other people on the course, and I've been hearing this ever since. And it's counterintuitive. You wouldn't have thought, it's paradoxical, again, we talked about paradox, that going to see art and experiencing art in this way gives one freedom. You'd think freedom is walking in the mountains or flying an airplane or riding a horse or something. But yet, there seems to be a freedom that gets unlocked in the human imagination, which is our greatest freedom, through the physical journeys through the art. And I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. What have you noticed? What have you, how, how has this happened for you? And then how have you, what made you then think, oh yeah, I could, I could, I could give this to other people because it, it, it's, it's not something that people would normally think of as a route to freedom. Interesting. Oh, okay. So, so yes, if you, if you take, take point that, you know, what we do at Art History Abroad usually happens after people have finished one big section of their formal education. So they're 18 or 19, all of which is about doing the intellectual gymnastics, um, in order to pole vault through examinations to matriculate and, and get onto university. Um, we have an opportunity which um, is to run a, a course which is essentially educational, but it has no uh, reading list, it has no essays, it has no marking, it has no examination at the end of it. It is learning quite simply for the love of learning. Now, of course, in a way, I can't really say that on a website because people would never buy our courses because it's, you know, that sounds a little bit watery, let's say. But to me, it's a very real thing. And I think it is for the, anybody who's experienced teaching in that way and being at the receiving end of it. And the reason I think it's so is that the very, the very point about being on site is an all round, um, experience. Uh, you're getting there. Um, you're seeing things in life size as opposed to on a tiny image on a phone. There are the smells. There's the sound, there's the stepping around other people who may be praying in a church, trying to do things to avoid mass and all of those things. So you are super aware of everybody else and your environment when you're doing it. And then you get in front of the thing that you, the, 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 the quest you get there. And at that point, it's can be thrilling, especially if it's a really well-known thing that people have heard about. And, and so to finally get there to the end of it is, as I say, it's thrilling. It's really exciting. People get really excited, burst into tears every so often. But, but oddly enough, people 
crying more in Rome than anywhere else. But but that but that that I think is because it's a uniquely emotional place for so many reasons. But but it's partly quest. And uh, you get there and it's thrilling. It's really exciting to be in that space. And then if as a teaching experience and learning experience, it's not all about the delivery of didactic information of being told the dates of when it was done and all of that. All of that can be fed in um, at different points, but it's not as if you start there. It's a case of well, where's the best place to be looking at this from? How actually, how big it is? It says here that it should be so big. Is it that big? Or, you know, pacing out a building, looking at it from different angles. If it's a picture that, let's say, should be seen from a devotional kneeling point, and so often that's the case that, you know, if I, I know there's a, there's a wonderful painting by Pontormo in uh, Santa Felice Town in Florence, and it's, and it's one of the weirdest uh, paintings in the 16th century in Italy, and people either love it or hate it. It's the great Marmite painting um, because it has really lurid colors. And, and we do, I think, I think humans and society go through phases of favoring certain colors. Point. And, and actually, funnily enough, this Pontormo really offended people because of its lilacs and its light pinks and and in the 80s, early 80s, nobody liked those colors. Everything was primary colors. And it was really interesting. Gladioli as a, as a flower became the, you know, the, the, the sort of demonic plant. You know, there were, there were things that people wouldn't put in their garden because of the color. Sorry, I'm off on one there. But, but, but the Pontulmo's deposition usually puts people off. It's in a private chapel to a family called Capone and so it's behind a grill and just every so often the sacristan is there and, and they'll let you go in and they'll unlock it for you and it's great because then you can kneel down in front of the altar and at that point the painting suddenly makes sense the com composition of it and all of the rest and it's essentially about the absolute tragedy of somebody so young and so marvelous as Christ dying and being killed and they're literally being put on your head and you're, you know, given to you the way the painting is composed and it's all in the colors as well. And, and what you're doing is you're kneeling on the plate that is lifted to get to the crypt underneath the chapel where all of your ancestors are buried. So Christ in his death is being passed to you and you're thinking, this is awful. How much did he suffer to make a fundamental point about love to all of the rest of us? And, and, and I'm remembering his death and I'm thinking about the death of my dearly beloved on this spot. So the moment you get into that place, everything makes sense. And it's a, it's, it's a spiritual, emotional, visual, auditory, the sense that you smell the, you know, you can hear, you can, you can smell the whiff of, of, of incense from the morning's mass. All of those things come together and you say liberating. Well, if, but what it's doing is just, it's, it is an explosion of 
realization, emotion, and sensory invasion, which is just overwhelming. It's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and so that's why uh, information with, with things, you know, they, after all of that, once, once people have said, oh my God, now I get it. I really understand this. Then you can say, oh, and by the way, it was, you know, 1525 and people call this mannerist and, and there's things that are wrong with that term. So you can then talk about language and how we academically or, 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 or culturally have organized things and the rights and wrongs of that. But the main thing is to get across the emotional, the emotional aspects of it first. And you, and there are loads of places that you can really do that. Of course, museums and galleries are, are a problem because it's one thing after the next on a wall and, and it's, and you end up having to describe where it was in order to try and get to summon the muse in order to get people to that place. But the great advantage of things, seeing things on site is that you don't have to summon that muse, which depends on one's ability to describe it's there and it's evident and it's real. It's interesting. You talk about quest and it seems that, you know, we know that the hero's journey, the, the universal story is always quest. And we know that we are the speaking ape. They say we're the thinking ape, homo sapiens sapiens, but everything with the brain thinks, but we're the only ones with the larynx. We speak, we create poetry, we have language in that way and healing and story, you know, the shamanic healing process. You go to the shaman with your story. They go into the spirit world, get a series of instructions. It's effectively a story come back, give you a story. And then a new story is created. But it's the same when you go to the doctor, you say, oh, it's my leg. It's a story. The doctor delves into their knowledge. Ooh, leg stuff comes out with another story, creates a new story for your leg. Hunting and gathering is who we are. And story is a way of organizing that. And it seems that really hearing you speak, you're, this is the, again, back to paradox. You think something as heavily cultural as art and architecture would be so far removed from hunting and gathering that it would be artificial in the brain and an artificial experience and therefore of limited use to say our neuroscience, which would develop through our hunter gatherer ancestry. But hearing you speak about that aspect of quest and then the sensual experience, not just as the smell of the incense and the kneeling and the looking up at the thing, but also, as you say, to get there, you had to get there, you have to hunt, you have to arrive, you have to take a journey, which is a story it just in order to get to that place. And then of course you've got to do it in, you're doing it in a group as you would when you hunt or gather, and now you're hunting and gathering experience and information together and sharing this. What, from a neuroscience point of view, immediately springs into my mind there is, oh, axons and dendrites. So the axons being the main stems and branches of the brain cells that are reaching out to try and make synaptic connections with other brain cells, that we do this all the time until we die, otherwise our brains atrophy. And then the dendrites being the twigs that 
or like the root system that then makes contact with the other root systems and then myelination, the fusing of those neural pathways happens. That this seems to be how our brains are wired. And then you talked about quest and, and people bursting into tears. Then I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's dopamine. And that's the endorphins kicking in of having made the physical journey to get there of the exercise. And then the serotonin of the group connection and the shared experience and the oxytocin of the feeling of emotional shared support. All of those happy hormones, those are the four happy hormones coming together in that one moment of what could in a strange way be more natural for the brain. But one wouldn't necessarily know that when one looks at the words art history together. One thing I have a real, I have a question for you. When we were young, 5,000 years ago, when Mastodon still bellowed to Mastodon across the primeval swamp, you and I were coming out of you, Nick and me were coming out of a world that was pre cell phones and to some degree, pre computers. When we were at university, we didn't use them. We wrote everything longhand and we, yeah. And the people that were on, say, gap years going around and having these experiences that you're talking about, traveling and exploring, were coming with brains that were more naturally prepared. This seems to me to have changed. Have you noticed a difference in the type of brain that's coming in front of you on these trips? And if so, how are those brains impacted? by the experiences that your courses provide. Okay. So, so how, how do they arrive? I, I, okay. So, so on the, on the one, on the one hand, it's, it's very easy to take a pop at the internet and, and the digital age and I'm, and I'm, I'm guilty of probably uh, thinking like the, as many, many people in older people might, which is that, you know, the, the, the last generation or the, the upcoming generation, they're, you know, they're, they're somehow different and, um, something is lost from the experience before. And on the one hand, I think that it is marvelous that you can find information really quickly. You know, all of those that, you know, that capacity to have an idea, to have a question, a query, and then find an answer almost immediately is, is brilliant. It's, and, and that is a really good building block. You know, that's, that's, that's really exciting or, you know, how to do something, you know, you, you know, uh, you introduce a student to an idea, uh, or a book and they can go off and find it. They can go off and find that film that you think, oh, that's really relevant. You'll really enjoy this and you don't have to wait two months to go and see it. It's there. You can watch it this evening. So all of those sorts of things are really big and positive and good. The only, the only thing that I find is the sort of impatience that, that because you can get things very, very quickly, you assume everything will arrive very, very quickly. And I find myself becoming unbelievably impatient and, and therefore sort of rather irritated with myself. And, and I think the, I think the, and also the collective experience, you sort of touched on that a moment ago of of traveling and, and being together. And uh, I do remember actually once our good friend, Tom caught me doing this in Verona. Once I deliberately made ourselves late for a train because I felt that the course, the group 
weren't working very well as a as a whole. That's interesting. And and, and and we were in Verona. We didn't have bags with us, so it was just a day trip. But I suddenly said, oh, my God, we've got seven minutes to be on a train and we've got three quarters of a kilometer to run to get to the train. And, and we, we all got there, everybody helping each other, you know, and it was, you know, pulling each other on the train as the train then pulled out and stuff. And then we all collapsed in the carriage, hot, sweaty and exhausted. But all of a sudden, a group of people and Tom, I remember him looking at me and saying, you, you, that was deliberate, wasn't it? And. And I, I, you know, to this day, I'm not sure if it was just me being half-witted or, or whether there was a little bit of me that wanted to create that sense of uh, for all. Okay, so, so the, 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 the business of collectively doing things together is, has gone. I think it's interesting that, that personal sports have really taken off um, in the sense that, you know, when I was younger, it was all team sports. Everything was about being in part of a team. And now it's about... Actually, a lot of sports and the most popular and taken up sports, I think in Britain at the moment is jujitsu. Um, and more people are taking up that than, than, than other team sports, which is remote because they're all individuals as opposed to groups of people taking up. Sports. Anyway, again, I, I slightly digress, but, but if I'm looking for differences and therefore things that the, the, the very nature of AHA and traveling and having quite a lot of autonomy. So I'm really keen that when we set up a course, we can do all sorts of things to uh, make it wonderful and lay out a program of great events and things like this. But I'm really, really, it's very important to me that the tutors can, can wake up one morning and say, do you know what, it's an absolutely fantastic day out there. I think we should do this. Or, you know, we can go and do that. Or why don't we go and watch football? Or, that there's all sorts of things that it that that make the trip both an adventure for them, but crucially, that the the tour, the the course is an individual course, an individual adventure for those students. And it's not the same as the last one. It's their course. It was their history. And it was their experience, not a a usual one. Um, that, yeah, go ahead. I have got a question that will follow, but go ahead. And then and then then in terms of, of the, ex I've, I, um, I often talk to students at the beginning of the course, uh, about, about the senses and using up the senses. Um, I know just a moment ago I was talking about the Pontormo deposition and I possibly sounded somebody who like somebody who either understands or believes in the resurrection. Um, I don't, I don't really. There's lots of things that I like and approve of, but, but I don't quite get the resurrection, but I suppose that's life's great passage. But, but what I am keen on in a spiritual sense, if I've got a spiritual center, it's that I really want to use up the things that I was given. And those are my senses. Now, when I, I don't know to what extent being paralyzed when I was a teenager from the neck down had any 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 input on this but i am absolutely determined to use up all my senses and i've been lucky enough to do what i've done whereby my visual visual acuity is really pretty acute and and i notice things i see things i i've got a, a great maturity in my sight if you like of recognition and things I'm a bit pissed off about my hearing. I, I, you know, I can hear all right, but I, I, I haven't explored sound enough. 
and I really want to explore sound. I was quite worried about my nose a while ago. I used to smoke. I loved smoking. God, I love smoking, but, but I stopped smoking. And, and so I started to scent and smell much better. Not me personally, but the act of smelling. And uh, so, so I, I actually spent some time um, going to perfumiers and asking, how do you smell? What do you do? How do you register what, what actually happens in the nose? And now I'm, I'm, I'm a real sniff, snot, snob. I go, you know, I can spot a synthetic smell really easily. I'm really aware of what I'm walking past. Touch, feeling, I lost all of that. But, uh, but what I've got, I've really enjoyed exercising. Taste, I've loved food all the way along. But what I want to do is get to my deathbed and I'll be pissed off if I get run over by a bus and I haven't finished using up all of my senses because that is... To be honest, the only way I can say thank you, if I've truly, wholly used myself up, I've loved as much as I possibly can, I've appreciated all of those things, I've appreciated what my, my connection to the rest of the world. If I can do all of that completely at that point, rather like a finished plate at supper, I can say, you know, thank you, that's, that's it, and I'm out. But I've really enjoyed it and I've made the absolute most of it because I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. And so I have, I, I tend to use biros, pens, pencils. I tend to use them up completely. I'm really irritated if I lose a pen, which is only half finished. My pencils, I've got two or three, I gave one to Cosmo the other day. My pencils become unbelievably small until I can't use them anymore. And then I actually, I tend to keep them because they're memories. And, Slightly pathetic, but anyway, the, the, the point is to use oneself up. And if I can, if we can, as a, as a group, impart that sense of, of, of appreciation, understanding, use of the senses to our students, not only is it liberating in a way that I was kind of describing earlier on with the Pontorma, but it's kind of an antidote to the digital world or it's a supplement to the di digital world. You know, there, there is no way that people should and could live going forward without the digital world. It's here. But what we've got to do is to kind of learn how to do both. And if, if it can be a journey in one's own development as well. And, and as a, to a point, trying to find some purpose in all of it, using oneself up isn't a bad one, as far as I can see. It seems to me that what you're talking about is teaching people how to live because to, to explore, to learn for the love of learning, to encourage the love of learning. That's one part. And so often in our culture, we celebrate the intellectual or we celebrate the spiritual and because of the church and whatever that we inherited that that morality, we denigrate the senses, we denigrate the sensual, even though we spend our entire lives trying to gratify our senses, but we feel guilty about it. And we're told we should feel guilty about it. And it's this really interesting point that you're making about the senses that as someone who was deprived of your senses for a while, in a way that I think few people have experienced to then really see their value. And then that, that there is no separation, of course, how could there be between your spirit? and your mind, your intellect, and your senses. And to make that separation, perhaps also 
induces a type of dementia that's pre-digital that some of our ancestors might have felt. So just stay with me here. So for example, I, I have a great friend who we did a, a podcast with, Jane Pike, a while ago, who works very much with the nervous system. And she delved for years and years, like decades, into deep, deep yoga and was a yogini to the point that she's been flown all over the world giving courses and so on and you know studied in India. And she said the problem with it for her in the end was that there was too much in the philosophy of it that was about using this practice through the body to leave the body behind and only go to the spiritual as if the body was something bad or wrong in just the same way that, you know, we've done, done that with Christianity and so on. But really that's just, seems to be a way of controlling people. And she said that it, it seemed at a certain point that it, what then happened was her body began to shut down. And she said a lot of people she knew had this experience that they took the, the yoga to an extreme where instead of serving the body, it began to work against it for interesting reasons. People could go back to that, which surprised me, but she said, no, this actually does happen. You were talking about the senses there as being part of the whole and having been deprived, you know, we think about sensory deprivation, you know, if you go into a room where you can't see, or you deliberately put on a blindfold so that you're, you can hear better or, yeah, and, and, and people are now seeing the, the value of doing that sort of thing. I've noticed that on your courses, you're absolutely right. You expose people to taste, you expose people to smell, you expose people to the touch of the stone, you, and, and, and not just the touch of the stone on your hand, but the touch of the stone on your knees or to lie in a position on the stone to look up at a certain painting or something that all of that is going to, again, bring us back to the sort of hunter gatherer route of pure functionality within the human brain and body, which is sort of our original blueprint, whether it's done by going to a place to look at a piece of art and architecture, whether it's by going through a forest to look at a deer, the same process seems to happen in the brain. And where I was asking about a digital dementia, that seems to be the catchphrase now. I, it, you're talking about the senses made me realize that perhaps there's been a dementia of trying to divorce people from the senses that's caused such unhappiness and suffering in people that it's made us do things like invent the Spanish Inquisition and, you know, the Holocaust. A lot of that seems to have come out of the suppression of passion and the suppression of the senses to the point that people become so angry that you can then control that anger. And I'm going to make you go and commit these atrocities. You could argue that that's to some degree what's going on in Putin's Russia right now. But I hadn't thought about it like that until you made those points. So when I asked you, have you noticed a digital dementia in the new generation coming? When you said, ah, well, maybe a bit, but there's all these other good things about the digital age. I hadn't, until you began to talk about the senses, I hadn't put together that perhaps there was another dementia, which we've suffered from for a much longer period of time, pre-digital. And so as you were talking too, it made me think the word came up in my mind, pilgrimage. Is that really what you're doing? Are you? Uh, yeah, no, I think it's really, it's, that's fascinating. Okay. So, so occasionally when, when people hear about what we do with teenagers, they, they say, ah, oh, it sounds like a modern grand tour, you know, the, the 18th century idea of largely Englishmen and 
and quite a lot of Frenchmen going off on, and Germans as well, and Goethe did it. Uh, you know, you go off and you travel, and, and quite often the quest was to Italy because of Rome and Roman Empire and the church and so on. And, and so, yes, that was one sort of pilgrimage. And, and interestingly, it's done at a stage where young people have become independent. They're physically and emotionally independent enough and sexually mature and all of those sorts of things to be able to go off and, and, and explore for themselves. The same happens with Aborigines, I, I think. I remember reading Bruce Chatwin's songlines and being very, very impressed by that as a, in my 20s. And thinking at the time, that's, you know, what he's kind of describing is not unlike the modern gap year or, or, or pilgrimage in the middle ages. And, and it's about setting off on a journey and experiencing all sorts of things as you go along and, and in a way, having an opportunity to, to try oneself out because of, after all, until you're about 18 in the main, you're told what to do, what to eat, where to sleep, and all of those sorts of things. And all of a sudden you can actually go and just work it out yourself. And, and, and it's both an opportunity, but it's also a test of oneself. You know, can I actually do this? And I do remember feeling that very strongly when I was 18, leaving, leaving home and going to live in London, I was determined not to use connections or any other friends, so, you know, to find my own flat, to find my own job, to find my own stuff, just to find out whether actually as a person I could work. I do work, you know, not just work in a functional sense, but operate socially and all of the rest. And so, yeah, it's a, the pilgrimage, the, I, I think, is part of the same thing. You know, gap years, walkabout, Spartans going off and testing themselves, you know, young, young boys and all of that. I think it's part of the same thing. And yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty important part of development for one and all. The rite of passage. Yeah. Yes. I suppose rite of passage comes with, with some tremendous challenge, you know, you know, that, you know, mortal challenge that, that you overcome some mortal difficulty. I don't think one needs to overcome a mortal difficulty. I do see it as a more sort of positive thing of learning to appreciate yourself and your senses. You know, there's the whole thing of love oneself. I've never completely fallen for that idea, but, but learning to use what you've got in an external way is, is, is a really good thing. And that's, and that's a very good connector to other people and so on and so forth. So, so the idea of mortal challenge, I personally would leave to one side, but, but setting out to try oneself out socially and physically and sensually is, is a really good antidote to formal education and, and particularly as one sets out into, into a world or university where you hopefully will be invited to think for yourself, um, and create for yourself. And I think that's possibly what makes successful people within within the workplace or for the, if they, if they uh, don't want to work for anybody else, certainly to have the creative confidence to have a, to have a go and do your own thing, one's own thing. 
do one's own thing. I mean, that's live free, ride free. Where do you want AHA to go? What's next for you? What? What's next? It it was you know art history abroad as a as a title. You know the one thing is that I quite enjoy is that what you start off with as a plan quite often doesn't end up being the way it goes. And and the more fun thing is just to kind of let it go where people and 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 circumstances lead. And and like all like any organisation, it's so much a part of the people who are there with you and those you meet along the way and changing ideas. And so, so Art History Abroad, it was quite specifically not identified either to me or to Italy. And, and so it can go anywhere. And I would quite like it to go everywhere. I would quite like to see it not only in Europe, but also in India, Japan, and, and in South America. In fact, anywhere, anywhere. You know, I think, I think it's applicable elsewhere. So that's one thing, geographic and, and an intellectual spread. Art also, I think as a term, you know, what is art? That's always been in the background. I think, I think art itself is a, is a floppy term and I quite enjoy it for being loose like that. I'd also quite like to change the parameters or encourage the parameters of what we do and what we think about and the way we approach things. I know, I remember, ooh, uh, it's probably about 10, 12 years ago, you and I talking about the nature of, of, of what AHA does and us remembering when we talked together in Florence and, and that it's, 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 both, it's all kinetic and all auditory and aural all at the same time. Now, what we were fumbling with then is what you've now developed into a much more articulate description of axons and dendrites. Dendrites, yeah. Dendrites. And, and I'm interested in developing that because that, that chimes with my belief structure about using oneself up. It chimes with, um, the idea of the, the nature of education being about liberation as opposed to structure and stricture. So, so that as a development, I think would be really interesting. So both geographic, but also because I, I don't know about you, but I find teaching an enormously emotional experience. And, and for that reason, actually, I very, very rarely ever go and watch any of our tutors. Simply because, you know, I know standard practice is go and review people, or check that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. In my view, I, I don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. The way I prefer to do it is to teach the same students maybe the next day. Mm. So I can look at their development or I can look at the, the, the teaching capacity of the tutor I'm interested in by their reflection, not by looking at them directly. After all, the only important thing is what ends up in the student. Mm. So look at the student. Don't look at the person who's doing the teaching. Apart from anything else, it's embarrassing watching people teach. Or, it, I, you know, I know that I slightly become somebody else when I'm teaching. And when I'm off on one, mm. I am altogether some, somebody else. Mm. Um, and, and so I'd rather not pry on anybody's 
personality in that way. I'd rather just let them be what they want to be. So the, 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 the experience of teaching, I think is hugely emotional. I think, you know, obviously it's different if you're in a classroom and I think I, I am lost in admiration for people who are teaching within schools, where there are people who don't want necessarily to be there, they're tied to a desk or they're in an environment that's unsympathetic or whatever. That is hugely difficult. And, and before somebody can actually deliver meaningful knowledge and inspiration, they've got to get over all of these hurdles. I'm an, an amazingly, and with my tutors and the people who work for AJ, amazingly privileged position to be able to walk out of the door and walk somewhere else and say, hey, look at this, this is wonderful. And it's privileged in economically and, and physically. And so, so I, you know, my, my, I, I frame my view within that, you know, teaching is a very big word. It refers to a lot of people in a lot of different circumstances, but the bit that we're able to do is, is hugely emotional, liberating for both the person teaching and, and the recipient. And I think I've already forgotten the actual question that you asked me. Well, you, you actually just answered it. Emotional liberation. I mean, and, and emotional liberation because, you know, the intellect serves the emotions, the emotion serves the intellect to take that to as wide a context as possible. And it's funny you took, use the word abroad because, you know, the word abroad semantically simply means out and about, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean overseas. And just so listeners know, not everything that AHA does is overseas. A lot of what you do is, is, is also local to go abroad can mean to walk around one's village. One is abroad. You know, the other word I love is the old Norman hunting expression of enlarged. The stag is enlarged, you know, he's enlarge. He's gone Brilliant. out, he's yeah, left yeah, the thicket yeah. is all it means, but it, it, he's broken cover. But it, it's interesting how words take on certain meanings. And the one of the things I've, some of the best experiences I've had with you as a teacher, I think have been when you've shown me something really local. The other day we were, I was lucky enough to be in for the listeners in, in Nick's village with my kids. And there happens to be a very, very beautiful piece of medieval architecture in there, which isn't the church. It's the thing next to the church, which is this, a half timbered building. Okay. One sees a lot of half timbered buildings. They're always charming. They always have a nice aesthetic, but this particular one had a set of carvings in the, in the half timbers of a detail that I've never seen before anywhere. And I live in a part of Germany that's famous for half-timbered villages and I didn't see anything like it. And that was two minutes away. It, that feeling, what, what I'd love to do is encourage people always to look for what's close as well as what's far when one is questing. You also mentioned something else, which I'd like to come back to, but I want to do this on another podcast. I want to have you back. Would you come back? Also, would. Because I've got some questions. You mentioned resurrection. You mentioned self-love. Yeah. And you mentioned pilgrimage. Pilgrimage got a bit of a thumbs up from you. Resurrection and self-love got question marks from you. I'd like to explore those three concepts, self-love, resurrection, redemption, resurrection, and pilgrimage in a wider context, looking at it from the brain point of view, as well as from the physical point of view, would you be willing to come on and, and do that? 
Love to. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I think logically that's where this conversation would go. And I, th I think many of us who would listen to something like this would have those questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the listeners to send in their questions. What are your questions to Nick about what he does? What are your questions about the nature that he's talked about of the senses of how the senses, the intellect and spirituality come together? What do you think about self-love? What do you think about pilgrimage? What do you think about resurrection? Even if those are just questions, especially if those are just questions. And then let's kick those questions around on round two with Nick. Before we go, Nick, how do people find you? How do people book a course with you? How do people go walk around London with you, let alone Italy or Suffolk or India? Or can they also have conversations with you online? What are the mechanisms by which people can contact AHA and you? Uh, well, the, the key one, I suppose, is the website is um, arthistoryabroad.com. Um, but uh, uh, it, that will describe some of the things we do. Um, but, but to be honest, um, it's, it's that whole thing of, of keeping things simple and direct, um, which doesn't ne necessarily reflect the complexity of other things that we do. So there's that, but, but ultimately write either to info at Art History Abroad or better still write to Nick at arthistoryabroad.com. Nick at arthistoryabroad.com. Yeah. And that's Nick, N-I-C-K, okay. um, Nick, arthistoryabroad.com. And that, and that'll come through to me. And, and particularly if anybody is doing such thing to just reference Rupert on, on, on the email. And then, and then, and then I will leap into an action that is unfamiliar to many people who write to me. Um, anyway, so, so no, I enjoyed hearing from people. Yeah, I, I would, I would encourage listeners, write to Nick, ask him stuff, font of information. I have learned so much from you, Nick, over the years that we've likewise known each other. Time with you is always time beautifully spent satisfying we spent the, the 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 pleasure of discovery that i always have when i'm in your company is something i cherish so thank you so much for sharing that in a wider context here on the podcast and i look forward to having you back for more thank you yep happily come back thank you very much all right till next time bye for now bye bye Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.